Hello and welcome back to Absurdity. My name is Ryan Becker and I am joined by my... Actually, I got nothing today. I'm just going to be honest. It's not that I don't have anything to compliment you. It's just I keep running into this situation where I forget to think of what I want to say prior to hitting the record button. But uh, I am joined it's, by it's, my... It's okay. Is it because I got rid of the five o'clock shadow now? You just don't know. It is. It is. Uh, no, I am joined by my talented co-host. He is very talented, actually, if you were if you were not aware. Um, his talent is stealing my heart. He, I try to keep him from doing it, but he doesn't. But Henry Johnson is, is our co-host, and I'm excited for this conversation because I think it was born out of born out of the the unexpected success of of our Josh Duggar episode and in seeing the both the realities that Josh Duggar's wife faces but also then the and the other women in that situation as well but then also seeing the women who poured out their stories in the comments on YouTube just sharing how they have been either you know how they have suffered from abuse or how they have struggled under the submission doctrine and, and, and male headship theology. And there's, there's so much there to unpack and there's so much pain that has been unresolved. So much pain that we're, we're still trying to wrestle with and, and grapple with that we need to. And so Henry and I decided that this would be probably a good opportunity for us. We've been speaking on some pretty controversial things and the last few weeks, and don't get me wrong, this is technically a controversial topic, but for me, I think this is something of a, to us, this is a positive conversation to us because I, just motive going into it for me is I do really want to affirm the value of women and the role of women in society, not being, you know, what, what traditionally is taught as their role within the faith. Uh, within within Christianity, a lot of Christianity. So yeah, that's uh, that's kind of my motivation and why I'm here. But um, Henry, what are you what are you hoping out of this conversation? Well, first of all, we want to recognize the reality that just as we said, we're talking about this because of the unexpected success of the Duggard video. We recognize that women live in a world, especially within a lot of mainstream Christianity, where anything they do successful is an unexpected success. And so for us, we just have the, we have the right, to, I mean, the privilege to talk about it, obviously, but it doesn't impact us the same way it has our sisters, uh, both inside and outside of faith. And so I, I guess what I'm hoping to accomplish is to have a conversation, yes, but we want to be fair up front and admit that we're two guys, again, <laughs> talking about yep. uh, theology and the church. And to be honest, we have grown up, no matter what your particular faith background, and most faith communities, especially in Western Christianity, as a man navigating the church, you've not really had a lot of, you know, opposition to face or, or, or limitations on your service per se. And that's not the same for those who may be listening, who are, you know, on the feminine side of, of the church. And so we just want to recognize that. And we don't want to make light of the pain and the lack of opportunity and and to be honest, the victimization that has taken place when talking about someone's value and worth, and then tying that not just to a life here, but tying it to the life hereafter, or using God as the curmudgeon, if you will, the, the crudgel, to to support that, right? So, because I've never had to go through an experience in church 
to quite the same level where someone has told me God wants me to stay at a sub, you know, sub level of existence or, or to put aside my feelings or my opinions on something because we live in a church. Let's be honest. They're like, you're a man. You can have your opinions. You can have your, you know, your desires and, and, and move that, that that's not been a limitation to me. So that's just a long way of saying, I want to recognize right off the bat, we're having this conversation, but we don't want to make light of what our, our female listeners have gone through and for what little it's worth. And I know it sounds like too little too late, but I do want to apologize on behalf of the church, or at least in my capacity as an active Christian pastor. And I know Ryan has been an active pastor in a church in the past and now still ministers in other capacities that whether you define that as traditional pastoring or not, it's still having influence over young men and women and older people, mm-hmm. right? And and in both of our capacities, I think we would, I can speak for both of us, we apologize for the pain and suffering you've experienced and hope that this conversation would not re-victimize you, but would be a, a benefit to you, maybe help you in that healing process and maybe help others, other men and women in positions uh, that can influence this topic to make wise and healing decisions for the future. So that's kind of what I want to see out of it. Yeah, and I do want to say as well, I, I would second everything that, that Henry said there. I, I think the we, I think one fair criticism that could come of this episode is that it's just us two men that we didn't invite a woman into the conversation. And I will say that was partially for the sake of time. Uh, but the, the reality is it, we're not against it. We would love to have a woman come on and, and talk about this with us. So if you or someone you know, or if there's someone that you would love to, and you think would be a good fit for the show, uh, we would love to invite them on. So please let us know. This is not at all a, we are trying to prevent anyone or not not amplify the voices of, of women in this conversation, but rather this is, I, I think it's actually good for us to set some form of a foundation between the two of us that we can then move forward from too. And we are, I think, Henry and I would both classify classify ourselves as lifelong learners where we are continually growing and educating ourselves. And that's part of what this podcast does for the both of us. So yeah, we are just hoping you you enjoy the ride and enjoy the conversation as we have it. Um, and I I will say there there was something really that that stuck out to me uh from the comments of the Josh Duggar episode. There was there was a woman who commented saying something to the effect of there, there was a moment where I was talking about researching and looking into the Josh Duggar case and looking into the history of it. And there was a moment in that episode where I said I had to get up, you know, take a break and leave the room and then come back and, and finish. Right. And she mentioned she was like, with all due respect, women don't have that. Like you had a privilege of leaving the room, you know, and researching this. And don't get me wrong, women can do the same thing there, but the idea being that I could have walked away and not looked back and would have been fine. Wouldn't have been an issue. Uh, you know, I could have just moved on with my life. And a lot of men are doing that. The stats on that YouTube video, you know, over 23,000 views on it and 91.7% of the views were from women. So it's already by and large that men are kind of avoiding these topics. And so I, I responded to her comment and, and said, you're right, it is an active privilege that I can do that. And that's actually why I turned around and, and once, I, once I could, you know, 
stand to to relook into it, I went back and did it and then followed through with our conversation on it. It's because I know, and we talked about this on a different episode on the privilege of protest, the idea that for a lot of white people protesting for racial justice and and like Black Lives Matter, that's a privilege to us where we're like, uh, you know, or the the privilege of optional protest. Where it's like, oh, it's I don't like how hot it is today. I don't like how cold it is. I'm not going to go out. Whereas people who are protesting, many of them feel like they don't have a choice. And like it doesn't matter what the weather is or what the risk is that they're going to do it because they feel the need to protect themselves, their loved ones and others in their community. And American and, and a way to see this on the international stage was just like Americans with Hong Kong <laughs> and the way Americans saw Hong Kong protests. Or Belarus, even for that matter. Or Belarus, yeah, as that's ongoing. And, and, and so they're... Like this is a this is a a worldwide thing that that we a worldwide phenomenon that we see, but I just wanted to speak to that. I think that was one of the more pointed and and one of the the comments that really stuck out to me from that episode because it was she was right, and I wish I had I wish I had mentioned that fact when we had recorded because it's not something that I I didn't actively think about, but I was really grateful that she that she pointed that out and that I had the chance to speak to that and and clarify it too, both specifically to her in the comments, but then also, you know, here on the show. So can we go, I guess, a kind of a, a quick set the groundwork for foundation of, of what we're talking about with biblical headship, submission theology, male headship theology, all of that good stuff. Can you, can you help us lay some groundwork there? Well, I mean, yes, we'll do a very brief summary. Very, very brief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, and this is complex and it depends obviously on who you're talking to, but the general gist of what we mean by headship theology or or submission theology or whatnot, is a, a concept that's existed for centuries, to be honest, which is the church has tended to view, and a lot of this comes from the origin of sin theologies, uh, to use that term, in the church, where the idea that in the book of Genesis at the beginning of the, the, you know, the Bible, sin entered the story that even non-Christians have probably heard of, the idea that there was Adam and Eve, there was a man and a woman, and then Eve ends up at this tree, and she ends up taking a piece of fruit after she is tricked, beguiled, etc., by the devil in the place of this serpent, this talking snake. And from that, right, they say sin enters the world. All the damage, all of the disaster that we see around us has come into the world because of that act. And in that that kind of not very nuanced or I think completely studied out understanding of the origins of sin has come a theology that, well, it's because women couldn't be trusted because women were the easier to be tricked and deceived. And, and therefore all of our problems are really stemming from women in that sense. And over the centuries, the church has taken spins of that theology, and especially a lot of the writings of the Apostle Paul, who two-thirds of what's commonly called the New Testament is, is his writings, and they've morphed them to say that women, while valued, right, I think they would argue, well, they're valuable, but that they should submit uh, to the men in church in positions of leadership. Uh, this fight comes out a lot with, especially in the last 50 years about women being pastors or priests, this idea of, of women fulfilling a clergy role in the church. And they will say, well, women can't be trusted to do that, again, because of the Eve story or whatnot, and that they need to submit. If Eve had submitted to Adam, then we wouldn't have had this issue. And so these are spins on theologies that basically say a woman's place in the home, a woman's place in church is to 
while having value, submit to the spiritual guidance primarily of the male in her life, either in church leadership or the husband in the family, and, and kind of that idea that the man is the head of the home, he's the head of the church, and that women have a role under that as long as they're in cooperation with and ultimately submitting to the ultimate decisions of the men in their lives. And that's probably the easiest way I know to summarize that, because there's there's variance under that. But that's, that's basically it. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's interesting to me because it really is this, this situation where I think it will get harder and I think we'll actually face a more, a stronger resistance as, as the church is more and more correcting this teaching, mainly because people like power and men don't want to give it up. And and let's be honest, all power loves the status quo. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, and, and that's the that's part of the problem is we do love power and we we don't want to give it up. And so, and I say we in general, There, that's true of women too. Everyone loves power. Everyone loves to have it. And it's okay to have power. It's not okay to, to idolize it and to, to hold on to it at the, at the detriment of others. And to be honest, it, it's it, what, one thing that's really, really interesting to me and we're not going to make this a Bible study, just so you know. We'll we'll probably reference some texts like I'm about to right now, but we're not we're not making this a Bible study necessarily. One of the interesting things to me is uh, one of the historical understandings and explanations for Second Th- or First Timothy two twelve, which is I do not permit a, a woman to teach over a man. One of the one of the historical context understandings has to do with the Temple of Artemis and the idea that that there was a lot of mixed worship. There was a lot of uh, of women worshiping Artemis and and a feminist. I don't mean feminist like the what we think of as feminist, but just very much a a women usurping men as as authoritarian and, and as authorities. They within that that kind of worship and worshiping the god Artemis, and you had around this time. So you had people coming from, you had women coming from there. You had uneducated women because Roman society also had them as second-class citizens. And so you had, you had uneducated women. And then you had women who had money and women who had power in their own lives actually coming into the church as well. And it was interesting. In in Ephesus, where you have Diana, correct, right? The the Greek term, the goddess of Diana that was supposed to be located there in Ephesus. yeah, and and that's what's like to me. That's what's so interesting is that he was very very concerned with not women teaching, but rather that women would usurp and take authority from men. That they were power hungry in this time, and they were because of the circumstances at the time not qualified to teach. Like quite literally, they they didn't always have the knowledge or they there was a very real need to protect from syncretism or, or this idea of mixing different beliefs together. And why I bring this up now and early in the conversation is I is within power dynamics. Men don't want to give up power, so they actively take it from or they 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 will keep women from gaining any. And that's the exact kind of attitude that Paul was speaking about in First Timothy. And so it's almost this idea of if you were to read that today and read within that kind of context, there's the possibility of saying that Paul might actually be saying that about men if he was writing in 2021. 
Well, and this is this is a thing that's always bugged me about Western Christianity. And I'm going to use a little turn of phrase I use, so forgive me for that. It's kind of nerdy, but here's what I mean. Any text out of context is pretext to do whatever you want. Yep. And the Western church lives in a world where we like the battle of the Bible verse. And that could be a whole nother topic. Again, we don't want to turn this into a Bible study. But in the West today, what I mean by that is most people arrive at understandings of theology by taking a Bible verse here and a Bible verse over here and a Bible verse over here, and they string a whole bunch of verses together, and they they call it topical study. And they go, here's all the verses on this, and the, the majority of these verses all say this, so therefore this is our theology. And while that sounds good, where someone kind of, you know, with didactalism goes, hey, I have 36 verses that say this and 35 that say that, so the 36 win. Uh, mm. First of all, it's, re- it's, it's really easy to take a bunch of verses and make them mean whatever you want, independent of the context they're in. And second of all, I think it ignores the fact that, and I know this is uncomfortable for us in the West that want to use the Bible as a primary research tool, but the Bible was not written in nugget encyclopedia form, right? As I, as I or said, in English. Something, well, <laughs> or in English. That, that's correct. But my point is, verses and chapters are not original to the text. They're, they're actually yep. relatively recent in the history of Scripture, uh, the Christian Scriptures. It really only came out about the time of the Reformation, about you know 450 years ago. And the idea of, at that point, the Bible was becoming more accessible to the masses. And if you needed to find something quickly, you have to have a way to find it other than go, please open the 14th scroll and go 200 paragraphs down and the third sentence in. Right. And depending yeah. on if you're doing obviously Greek or Hebrew, or especially Greek, you don't really have sentences or punctuation. Or, and, you know, so then you'd have to go 14th line. And, and, and in the middle of this thing, if you can see those four characters, that's actually a word split off from the other one. Right. <laughs> those who study yes. Greek know what I'm and talking about. And then you about. get John, so, who <laughs> is the worst writer, like grammatically and, and punctuation wise ever. Like he just doesn't. It's, it's a, a nightmare man, trying to read. Spell? So, Correct. <laughs> Right. I mean, and then even Paul's writings are written in, you know, a, a form of koyon Greek at times, the Gospels primarily. I mean, he had a more educated form of Greek in most of his writing for sure. But I mean, that's basically a long story short, ghetto Greek, right? It's kind of the uneducated yeah. slang of the period. But th- the point I'm trying to make is, all right, I, I'm really upset when we get to topics like this, that the Christian propensity is to start randomly grabbing, quote, verses as if they were little Bible bullets or little nuggets of something and just flinging them at each other as if that's how we arrive at some understanding of truth. Whereas to me, you have to take the totality of the narrative to arrive at an understanding of where it is going, what it's trying to do. Again, we've talked about this over and over again on so many issues. There is, we ignore nuance at our peril, right? And, And I really think that happens at this issue. And the other thing I would, I would throw out here just off of what you said, is is I know the arguments probably already in somebody's mind are coming back out. Uh, a lot of men in the church would argue they're not taking or keeping anything from women. It's God himself who gave and is keeping. Yeah. Right? And that's something I probably could have put in the introduction where the idea that in the sin entry story in Genesis 3, there is a series where God is laying out a an explanation of curses or giving curses that depends on how you want to look at that. Again, the nuance. And where they will say God subjected woman underneath man, right? And so what they're doing is actually fulfilling a biblical imperative. They're fulfilling a command of God himself. It has nothing to do with with them specifically. And that's another thing I think that we have to fight or at least address when having this conversation. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's there's so much of this. And I wrote down uh, Battle of the Bible verses because I think that that and and this whole topical study problem that exists, which not all topical study is bad, but there is right. a there, there is a problematic way to go about it. And I think our denomination is sometimes very guilty of it as well. The and by the way, Henry and I come from actually a what is officially a complementarian denomination, like officially a women are not women can be pastors, but they there are limitations to that reality. And there are it is very much an ongoing kind of battle and struggle within our within our structure, our church structure, because we have a very formalized church structure that would take way too long to kind of dive into. But yeah, it's uh, basically an ecclesiastical, which means structure of the church. It's an ecclesiastical battle, I think, even more so anymore than a theological one at the grassroots. Yeah. But yeah. And and the but I do find it interesting that we we jump to that. And this is actually a problem that a lot of so so there is what regardless of whether we like it or not, there is a lot of overlap between conservative, liberal, outside of the church and inside of the church. Like there is a lot of overlap. And it's generally that you'll, you do find balance or you do find one that, you know, fits the other, or a conservative with this kind of view or a liberal with that kind of view or whatever. You do find that. And one of the things that I joke about is even the most liberal Seventh-day Adventist is still a conservative Christian or conservative evangelical Christian in some ways. And that that's like, so th- that does, that is a, that is a spectrum still, but one of the things that that I think a lot of progressives are up against is is in the battle. They lose a lot of progressives lo- lose the battle of the Bible verses because they are so. A lot of progressives don't know the Bible like word by word in all of these different areas. They just don't, and that is something that conservatives have a lot more experience with as far as like every time I'm in, in the room with someone who, who identifies as theologically conservative, they will spit Bible verses at you like it was ingrained in them as a baby. And a lot of progressives are a lot better at speaking to, I guess, the overall narrative or, or, or overarching narrative, but have trouble often, I find, citing specific verses. I know I struggle with that. And that's because I am a, that's because I, with my ADHD, memory verses are really hard for me. <laughs> I really, really struggle. And I can tell you general areas where verses are, but I can't tell you, I won't be, if you tell me this verse or this thing, we, we actually, I'm terrible at Bible trivia. I'm terrible at trivia in general. We discovered that a couple episodes ago. And when you asked me about uh, which president uh, was, I forget the question was, but it was after World War II. The, uh, w- which president helped recognize Israel? And, that's and what, what it was. Thank you. Was it was, it was, yeah. It was Harry Truman. Now I know that. Yes. However, however, the fact that you said Woodrow Wilson made my heart warm because that was the president uh, during World War One, which is a period that means a lot to me, and most people don't even Aww. know who that is. So I, I give you credit. You know. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. But yeah, I, I, um, I, it's just I was thinking of you. You know. So yeah, I, I, I see a lot of, a lot of progressive struggle in this, and and I would say that while I don't want to give into the battle of the Bible verses all the time, I do think that that. Those on our side, those on kind of this quote side of of the camp or uh, of that conversation, need to do better in biblical references and 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 being able to equip themselves with being able to speak knowledgeably in that area. I think that is something in a in a very glaring weakness that I see very very often. Right, and obviously that could be even an interesting podcast at 
some other point too, talking about you know hermeneutics and how would we approach scripture yeah. and whatnot. But I, I, I don't. As fun as that is, I don't want to distract myself going, you know, off that topic. I do want to circle back around to the topic we are discussing. And I guess this is this was a good part of the conversation to let people know where we're approaching this from, because there will probably be verses that are referenced. And I think Ryan and I both are not just speaking of verses specifically, we're trying to also be more balanced in the narrative as well, influencing that, again, the context, preventing a lot of pretext from taking place. So that that kind of thing, that's where, that's where I want us to go. So maybe, I don't know, Ryan, how do we want to how do we want to back this up? Where would be the, the best place to start? Do we want to start back with the original story that's gotten everybody to develop these theologies? Or, or do we want to back it up from just taking some of the common arguments and and commenting on what we think about that from a biblical perspective? I mean, how, how should we how should we run? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we should go the the route currently. I I I don't know that our space should be necessarily the the historical route. I think the historical stuff is important, don't get me wrong, and, and it is important for us to understand how we got here. However, I think that conversation is happening in a lot of other places, and I think one of those places is actually with uh, the new book by Beth Allison Barr on the making of biblical womanhood. And that is a book that has actually rocked a lot of people recently and and is making waves. And I think it's something that we should, it's something that I, it's a, it is a read that I plan to get here in the next couple of weeks and, and pick up. So if you're, uh, if you're wanting to do the absurd book club with us, then uh, you may want to pick it up and, and let book. us know. That'd be a good book to start with, since which, which I'm picking that up here soon. Which has been recommended to us in the comments and by people off offline. So, yeah. So if you're interested in that with us, then absolutely uh, let me know, and and we'll we'll start a little Facebook group or Discord or Slack channel, and and let's make our way through that book together. But there are a lot of other places having that conversation, and so for us, I think it, it's better for us to just talk about the the current situation or the current reality. And for me, I think one of these actually comes back to something I mentioned in that Josh Duggar episode, which is that oftentimes the interpretation of text is proven wrong by the implications of the interpretation. And this idea that it, when you take a belief to how it actually ends up impacting people and what the real world applications and implications are, you may find that that interpretation no longer holds up against the entire narrative of scripture. And if we actually see this and needing adjustments in several areas, whether that's modesty and purity culture, whether that is, you know, this with, with headship and submission, or whether that's um, even LGBTQ plus theology. And in my opinion, I do think that we desperately need a new understanding or an updated understanding of 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 sex within within the biblical framework and and what that really looks like sex in marriage i think there needs to be a i don't know what that overhaul needs to be but the but the cultural realities back then versus now are so wildly different and i think there needs to be something there and i don't know what i haven't spent the time doing it and i i wouldn't consider myself necessarily a scholar myself to do it but i do think that it is needed uh, so if you're a scholar listening to this uh, and you're interested, then you're welcome for the idea and go forth and conquer. But I, I do think that there are a lot of things where we're finding the implications for reality from the, those interpretations are problematic. And this is one of them. Watching how women and children especially are being forced into situations that are terrible. I just heard a, a clip from a, a pastor speaking saying, you know, a woman needs to submit, and, and maybe that means that she endures a verbal assault for a night. 
Maybe it means she endures a, you know, a smack to the face for an, for a night. And then the next day she goes to her church leaders and tells them and, and lets them know and gets to enlist the church, uh, the help of the church. And then, and then they will discipline that man because that man needs to be disciplined. And I'm just thinking how many times has something like that actually happened and the man isn't disciplined, but rather the woman is silenced and shamed. What did you do to deserve being hit? And this idea that we have a very, very strong bias right now against women. And that is something that is absolutely, it, 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 it's, I say right now it's existed in all of history, but I, it really yeah. is a, a problem. And that's why I don't think that the solutions that are always presented are the right ones because the same people saying that are the same people that are like, they're going to protect themselves. They're going to protect their friends. They're going to, no one wants to believe that someone they care about or someone they know as one way would do something so heinous behind the scenes or when nobody is watching. Yeah. I so, mean, and all of this is a, is a very bad misapplication of, of theology. I mean, I really do believe that. I mean, because there's, there's another thing that I think about when I hear horrible stuff like that, uh, when it comes to headship or submission theology, and that is this whole idea of headship or the head. This is very biblically charged language uh, that should actually be talking about the head of the church. And I would think that should not have been debated by any evangelical Christian or anything, that the head of the church is Christ. And for you to turn it into a man instead of the man— Jesus, and then I hear, I, I'm ready for those arguments. Aha, yes, Jesus came as a man. Okay, well, that was for prophetic reason, not for, never mind. So, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's it's like, uh, I mean, and and, uh, and let me give a disclaimer off the, off the top here. If you're like, aha, we already have figured out where these two are coming from. Well, you probably did, and that's fine. We, we, we own it. But, but let me just say for the moment, for the beginnings of my ministry, for a, a, my public ministry as a pastor, and for a good chunk of my life, I did come not only out of a more traditionally conservative denomination, both in the one I was in before and the one I'm in now, uh, not only did I come from that, but I was well-schooled in a lot more of these traditionally conservative understandings of Scripture, to the point that I can remember, uh, somewhat with a little vomit in the back of my mouth, I can remember some of sermons I gave even in my first year of pastoring and in a couple of the churches that I was pastoring at the time, preaching sermons particularly against women being pastors or elders or being involved in certain aspects of the church. And, and like you said, Ryan, I could throw a lot of Bible verses at you. Uh, I, I, I was very well schooled in that, and it was a topic that I felt very comfortable with for a long time until a, a series of events took place. And I even wrestled with it for several years there in the interim to end up where I'm at now. So I, I guess that's just a fair background to say. I, it's not like I've always been of the opinion that, aha, yes, women can do whatever. I just want you to know this is an issue even I've had to grow on. That there was a time I would have mm -hmm. very much used the babble, bat, babble, oh yeah, that Freudian slip <laughs> of just how there bad it go. is, uh, the battle of the Bibles in the opposite of probably a lot of the arguments we're going to make today. So. You yeah, know, but that, that's that's one of the biggest things that bugs me is the idea is that who really is the head of the church? Who is the head of the faith? Yeah, uh, and this and is <laughs> well, and 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 as an as an example, going into going into a little bit of that, as an example of what we see or how we see that kind of abused is Ephesians five, and I actually remember doing a Ephesians five is is the you know wives submit to your husbands 
and husbands or well, men that's, that's love, where your, the verse love your is wife that, like that, Christ. That that chapter has nothing to do with <laughs> just correct. Correct. Submit. I know. No. No. Yeah. Yeah. That that chapter overall really does speak to submitting to one another, and there is in the importance of loving one another and submitting out of love for one another. And and I actually had to do a presentation on this in a class in in college, a group presentation. And my professor was is actually pretty notable in our denomination for being uh, a male headship supporter kind of scholar. Like he's, he's one of, he's, he's in that camp pretty solidly. And so me as a college student studying theology and studying to be a pastor, I ended up in a part of a group project where that chapter was included. And I had a very real struggle of, am I really going to present this to the class and to this professor knowing that he might, you know, knowing that he may give me uh, a bad grade for it. Yeah, exactly. And the, but I did it anyway, because there are women in that class. I, in fact, three out of four of the people in the group, so it was basically just me, were women in my group. And I was like, I can't, I'm not going to gloss over this. Everyone, like, that's cowardly and I'm not going to do it. So I presented on it. And one of the things I pointed out is uh, in Ephesians 5.22 is where it says, wives submit to your, to your husbands. In Ephesians 5.21, it says, out of, out of love for one another and reverence for Christ, submit to one another and submit to each other. And then it says why, and then 522. But in your modern English Bible, it separates those two verses as a parts of different sections. But again, and this is battle of the Bibles, and again, context. Correct. Because again, chapters didn't exist. Ephesians 5 is an yep. independent thought. It's tied to the last half of four and the, yep. and the whole of six. Right, four, yep. five, and six are all one big narrative where the the basic whole of it is you're submitting to Christ. Then, as you submit to Christ, you're demonstrating that because again, this goes to our previous point. Christ is the head of the church, and if you don't know what do you mean, yep. Christ, the Christ is a Greek term. It just means the anointed one. Uh, the Hebrew term would be more understandable as Messiah. Right, either term was was interchangeable to a certain extent, but Christ is the Greek term, the Christ, the, the yeah. anointed one. And, and the idea that Jesus is the head of the church. And Paul, making this rather large discourse, starts talking about, all right, well, as we submit to Jesus, then what does this look like in, in practical terms? Because I and, and I got to be careful not to make this a Bible study, because I love the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is actually my favorite book of Paul's. So when mm. people start seemingly, I, I will admit, in my mind, misapplying it, I get really defensive, because I think it's a book that had the Western church spent more time focused on Ephesians than Romans, which tends to be the book that most theologians in the Western church focus on the most, I think the church would be in far better place. Because while Romans is theologically heavy, Ephesians is practically heavy. Yeah. And and I think we've lost that practical aspect. But yeah, in that, it's submit to Christ, and then it looks like this. And I always have found it funny in that chapter that I used to use by going straight to the wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord and whatever. Well, that's said only twice in the chapter. And the majority yep. of that chapter is given to men and how that's they literally what I was going to say, sacrificing, sacrificing yep. their own bodies for the wife. And then it transitions in. If you still don't get the context of how he's putting the power dynamics between husband and wife, you start with six talking about children with their parents. So you get a second illustration of this in practicality. And you see the same kind of setup again, where it will say such things as will submit to your parents. But at the same time, parents don't you know, egg on your children, don't abuse your children, don't, don't write, you know, yeah. that's not the exact language it uses, but don't basically don't provoke, I think is the actual language yeah. in most English translations. Don't provoke your children. The idea so, that if you use that and you abuse it in such a way, then why should they submit to you anyway? 
And that submission of, of the wife to the husband, first of all, is not prescriptive for the whole of the church. And even if it was, it's predicated on the submission of the husband to Christ. And that submission yeah. looks like his ability to exterminate himself for her sake, not to yep. protect himself for, for whatever. So the whole power dynamic in that, in that chapter, when put in the wider context, doesn't say anything close to what we've often used it to mean in, in the West today. Yes. And that's so, so in finishing kind of my story, I, I, that's in a, in a much lesser sense, I, that's basically what I presented because I was only a part of a group presentation. So I had to be very, very quick, but I, I very much included 521 in, in the section. And I was like, what, come what may, I'm happy for whatever part of this I need to get an F on, but I'm going to present what I believe and what I, what I believe the Bible to be saying and, and what seems to be, or make the most sense within the greater narrative and context. So I presented it. And I was hilarious. I got this super long email the next day from my professor. I still have that email that I could find where he goes into this whole explanation of how I'm wrong and how 521 has nothing to do with it. And I was like, cool. And then I found out he gave me an A anyway, because I did, because, and this was what it was so surprising to me and why I actually respect him given that I disagree with him on this. He did it because I met the, even though I presented something he's very strongly and vehemently disagreed with, I did what he asked me to do in the project. I presented and stood my ground. And actually a friend of mine in a different group had a similar situation in his, and he chose to kind of skip over and gloss over the, the, com the, the controversial part. And the professor gave him a D. He's like, I would have been fine if you had presented something that even I don't agree with, because that would have been the within the parameters of the project. But you skipped a over a whole diversion. section. Yeah, well done. D for deflection. So the, but one of the things that I talk about within that is I say, yes, women are called to submit, but the kind of love that they are called to submit to is the kind of love that you would have no problems you would submit to anyway. If yeah. like, if someone says, Hey, I want to go, I want to take us to the beach, a nice romantic getaway. We've been really stressed and busy and I really want to do something nice for you. You know, all expenses paid. I, I've, I've saved up some reward points and we're going to save a lot of money, but I want to do this for you. You know, can you take a few days off of work and let's go, let, let's go do this. Why wouldn't you say yes to that? I mean, unless there's something really like at work, you know, it's in the middle of a time where you really can't get away from it. But just in general, like the kind of love that is a, a love like Christ loves the church, that is a very high bar. <laughs> and you're well, right. Yeah, because but, he said, as he gave his life for the church. Yep. And so what this means is that if that's the love that women are called to submit to, then that means that by definition or by extension, they are not called to submit to a love that isn't like that. Well, and again, in that kind of, quote, power dynamic, everyone is trying to out-submit the other one, both directions. Yep. I, I like to say, what, yes, and this is something that could come up too, a lot of what I've discovered the longer I've been studying theology and really wrestling with text is how many of these things we fight today in the, in the church are actually symptoms, not the disease, and they're all yes. interconnected. Once you start pulling the thread on one of them and they all start spilling out into other things— and I can imagine it definitely for the first century Christians and even today when he was saying stuff like this, he's having to face a population that a lot of converts are coming from Judaism and they're dealing with Zionism. And I don't mean mm -hmm. the modern forms of Zionism, even though they have a lot of in common, this idea of power over somebody, whereas the yeah. gospel was a power under somebody where every text you see, again, not making it a Bible study, but even in Philippians and other passages like this where Christ submitted and humbled and all these kinds of languages, even to the point of the cross, even to death, even th though he was God, he didn't seek it robbery to be equal with him. 
this idea that the gospel flips the power dynamic upside down. And and, Mm -hmm. and one thing that I firmly believe, giving it away here, but in the biblical narrative, one thing I'm so impressed with with the biblical picture of God is the idea that God holds the principal pinnacle of power in the universe precisely because he could care less about having it. Yep. Right? I mean, it's that irony, right? The whole reason he has it is because he didn't care about it at all, right? You can trust him with it because he doesn't need it. He doesn't want it, right? He's, he's He's looking out for the best interests of the other. And the whole biblical narrative, as I understand, I believe as you understand it as well, and we have terms for that theologically kind of wonky in our own denominational structure, but I'll avoid those for now, is the idea that this whole intergalactic conflict is over an understanding, is God supremely interested about himself or is he supremely interested about others? And depending on where you fall on that spectrum is how it's going to influence your theologies, but also in in a great sense, the Bible would say your eternal destiny and which side of the Mm -hmm. good versus evil debate you're going to fight. And, there, and I would there say is, that same Zionism is now in Christian nationalism and other things, the idea that we have power yes. over instead of under. Yes, and there's there's a lot of reading in from our current understandings of words and, and what we picture when we hear certain things. A lot of that colors this conversation. You know, you say intergalactic and everyone's thinking, oh, so Star Trek, like, or Star Wars, <laughs> like, like they're there. And you have to, you have to take those blinders off in order to understand or you have to take that bias away in order to actually understand and and authentically engage with what you're hearing and instead of allowing that to color your judgment of an idea and this is a this is a big problem with how we read patriarchy into a lot of these these scriptural verses you know these bible verses and you're very much right that the the bible is very concerned with power under not power over and pretty much anywhere where someone is is has power the idea is that they're really trying to give it away, <laughs> that they're trying to find an, a way to share that power so that other people are lifted up and empowered themselves. And that is something that, that, we, that we miss. And I think part of why we miss it and part of why a plain reading of Scripture just doesn't work, sorry to say, but whatever your plain reading of Scripture is, like, it just doesn't work or else creation happened twice. Like there's, there's, there's and like six different people at different times independently got to the tomb first. You know, like there's, there's all these little things that just don't work on a plain reading of scripture because it, the Bible wasn't meant to be a plain reading word, you know, and language uh, doesn't translate word for word either very well. I know it's going to sound like sem- semantics. I, I would, and maybe this is the more the conservative upbringing that I had. I would argue that a plain, quote, plain reading of scripture does work, but a plain reading of anything requires you to understand context. Yeah. Well, no, that's what I mean. Right. I'm just I mean, saying I mean, plain nobody, reading, nobody like I read it Harry and Potter. just... And it's yeah. like, I don't know what's going on. Well, because you read the chapters in front of it and the ones after Well, it, to be fair, just... to be fair, J.K. Rowling also didn't know what was going on considering she like rewrote and re-identified uh, all of her characters after the book was were written. Oh yeah, no, that dude was definitely gay. Oh yeah, that guy, yeah, gay. Um, just saying. So the- Well, you're the author, you can technically do that. Yeah, but one of the one of the realities of the New Testament, and I'm very careful with how I use this wording, so hear me out here, but- in part, in part, I I do think that that the New Testament was written in code, and I don't mean code like prophecy, and I don't mean code like conspiracy. What I mean is the Bible and the teachings of the Bible themselves were very anti-empire, and that is a that is a term within theology. But the idea being that a lot of the teachings of Scripture, power under versus power over, or empowering women to actually be teachers and hold positions of authority, like Paul mentions in in Romans, a lot of that came from or a lot of that is against what, what Roman society teaches. But you can't outright come out and say Rome is wrong 
Rome is wrong, Rome is wrong. You, there is a way to go about including in these letters that Paul writes and that other the other biblical writers wrote to to the believers back then. There, there was a way for them to communicate their teachings in such a way that didn't alert and flag uh, unnecessary attention on the church that was already, you know, already had a lot of negative press, so to speak. And so there is something to be said about the fact that a lot of the Bible has to be, or a lot of the New Testament does have this theme of anti-empire, that by teaching one way, you are by definition saying that the other way is wrong, that this other way of doing life or this other way of regarding each other and 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 contributing to society is incorrect. And that is a very consistent theme, I think, that goes throughout the New Testament that we see quite a bit. I, I would even argue, again, it's going to sound like semantics. I don't know so much that the church was preaching, you know, particularly anti-empire or anti-Zionism or whatever, as much as just just that that theology realized everybody knew meant the underpinning, you know, the, the unraveling yes. of these current power structures. And yeah. I would argue that's not even just a New Testament theme. I believe it was also in the First Testament, commonly called the Old Testament. I mean, you see it in book, the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, other things that are dealing more prophetically, but with the rise and fall of empires and kings are raised up and kings are down. I, I think the problem is, is if you understand what, what Jesus even had said in the New Testament, it goes, if, if my kingdom was of this world, my people would fight, but right, I'm, I'm looking for a different kingdom. He's working to the new heaven and earth merging reality as, as the great Anglican theologian and my my, my secret, like, you know, man crush in theology, N.T. Wright would say, <laughs> and also in his works on Ephesians, which maybe is why, you know, that comes to my mind. Yeah. But this was this was always a theme of it was power under instead of over. And the whole thing that got Israel in trouble, ancient Israel, in, in trouble in the First Testament was the idea that they took that and they turned it on its head to make an exclusivity that they were somehow the sole heirs, not only of the oracles of God, but of salvation itself that the temple it was yeah. itself, and that progressed even into the New Testament where Second Temple Judaism, they're worshiping the temple, all right? They're trying to purge anything that they think is a risk to Judaism itself, and then they're also trying to enlist the state. They're trying to get Rome involved to deal with their problem by always, I mean, we see that in the book of Acts, and our church at this moment, we're just finishing a series on the book of Acts, and we've been seeing they're always trying to enlist the power of the state by convincing them this theology actually means they're against Caesar, and so therefore yeah. there's state threat. Why don't you come and deal with it? Because we don't have the power of capital punishment and we want to get rid of this guy. Right. But uh, you see a lot of those debates. And and yeah. so uh, it, it's understanding that power dynamic or where the priority is and not. And I, again, a nuanced reading, and we're not very good in the West at doing that. <laughs> so. No, no, we, we, we are very much a black and white thing. I agree with you, by the way, that, that the teachings weren't necessarily they 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 did understand a lot of this was wrong and they were they were teaching against it or they were they were teaching what they now knew to be truth what i mean is that there's a way to present that truth in contrast to the current realities of of society that meant that they had to be sensitive to the way that they communicated the teachings that's yeah you don't kind just of, come out and go we know this theology eventually means caesar isn't the ultimate king you probably don't yeah exactly yeah, yeah 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 exactly so that's that's specifically <laughs> what i mean by code it's more so it's more so just kind of veiled language or a little bit more subtle in in what it's trying to communicate, and that is something that it, that I I think is worth pointing out that a lot of that comes into play. So, it, shifting gears to to what we kind of mentioned, we we went backwards anyway because both of us are so fired up about some of these these improper understandings. Yeah. The what does this mean for the current 
situation in the current church and what is, I think, the way forward. It, to me, it almost seems like there is, that this is going to be one of those civil disobedience issues for a long time. And then we're going to look back on it and go, wow, this was amazing. I'm, I'm, uh, why are this is, sorry, wow, this was terrible. Why did we let this happen? And eventually we'll look back on this and, and, and believe that, I, I, at least I hope. But what is the actual kind of path forward here? The more and more I see, or the, the more and more I look at it, the more and more I, I, or the less and less I see the possibility of it just being amicably resolved the, the traditional way. No, I'm not calling it for any violence or anything. I just mean this idea of we're going to see more and more people just disobeying or going against what the corporate, the corporate or institutional church has voted or said or, or, or staked itself on and just doing it anyway. That's almost what it seems like to me. Well, and this is how all great reforms have taken place, where people had to get to the point where not because they were trying to assume power through it or, or anything else, but they said, my ultimate authority has to lay in the word of God, right? Mm -hmm. And, and it, it's totality and, and an understanding that the church is messy, right? And that's not an excuse for that. And the church has done horrible things, right? But I, I'm, I'm trying to say it, the church is that wrestling just like human character is a wrestle where we're constantly the ebb and flow of trying to figure out how to live the heaven and earth merging reality. How are we beginning to move forward and, and, and get ready for that eternal kingdom that is going to come and put the earth right, right, when right now it is not? Yeah. And the church, unfortunately, the institutional church has often been on the wrong side of that argument. Now, that gets into another nuanced theology, and I, I want to try and not go on too many side tangents. As I said, these are all interconnected, but I'm trying to focus just on this. But I mean, it's always been the case that God's, God's people have never been institutionally carried through. They've always been carried through by the, by the power of the Lamb, you know, by Jesus himself. And the institutions are valuable only in as much as they become appropriate vehicles for carrying it forward. But we've seen time and time again, even in the biblical narrative, the church institution itself ending up co-opted by evil and turned to be on the wrong side of God's narrative and actually multiple times become the worst enemy of God and his own people on the planet, right? Yep. Israel was a vehicle, an institutional vehicle to carry forward the reality of God's work. And again, I because I guess I'm just in an N.T. Wright quoting mood, but, and by the I'm way, if anybody it. watches this and you know N.T. Wright or something, and you you want to show him this podcast, it would be a dream of mine to talk to this gentleman. Like, you know, this is totally random, but if you just want to know my thinking, like, I don't, I don't worship the man, but I think the spirit is working with him. And I'm just like, mm. ah, and I know he's controversial in evangelical circles. Maybe I secretly as a rebel in me love that even more, but I, I really think his understanding of definitely the New Testament narrative is, is spot on. But anyway, mm. back to the point I'm trying to make. And our N.T. Wright makes, he says, Israel was a lot like a fire truck called to fight a fire, and then it wrecked in a ditch on the way and caught fire itself. Yeah. So, yeah. right, the, the institution went off. In the New Testament, right, that we f see the final rejection of the institution of Israel when the church is kind of rebooted, right, and comes out. And then we know both in the biblical narrative and in history, the church, again, by the time you reach the medieval period, has been co-opted and becomes the worst enemy of God and humanity on the planet again in the Dark Ages, what's commonly called the Dark Ages, or the medieval period, right? And and then again, uh, feel free to disagree with us, but I know Ryan and I are part of a faith community that our understanding of eschatology, which means end-time events, and, and the book of Revelation, we believe the institutionalized church will again become the worst enemy of God and his people on the planet right before everything's finalized. So yep. you see these cyclical 
events. And so I guess to bring all of that to your question, my you know, my point would be to say, I, I think our first realization has to be, and this goes back to headship theology in the appropriate way, my ultimate head is Jesus Christ, not the church, the institutionalized church. There is one Lord, yes. one faith, one baptism, but my ultimate authority is there. And that's scary. And I say that particularly as a minister who is employed by an institutionalized church and I eat because of the money they give me. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I recognize yeah. that. But at the same time, and that's a call to my own, who do I trust? Is it me, the institution, mm-hmm. or, or Christ? Right. Am I going to do the right no matter what? And and that's easy to say, but it's much harder to do when it gets to that point. And I, I've had to notice my own self when it comes to this topic, pushing the boundaries more and more and more. And you have to be, as Jesus said, wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. I don't intentionally just like start calling up my denominational administrators all the time and going, you suck, you don't understand the Bible, and you're going to hell, or whatever I want to say, because of, <laughs> I don't do that, but, right, because I just get fired for no particularly good reason, and, and the Bible does say we need to always do best by others as, as much as possible, right? So, but that doesn't mean at my local context, or when I'm giving studies, or when I have choices in my local context of who to, quote, empower in ministry or or to elevate in the church to do certain roles? Am I making convicted choices that are empowering women that are are correctly Mm -hmm. teaching the nuance a lot of these things? And there was a period in my ministry I wasn't doing anything of the sort. Now, you know, I, I try to move that end. I try to be more supportive of what few female colleagues I know in ministry, no matter their denominational context. I try to empower more women in our local church. Uh, I've tried to equalize it, even in subtle ways that people don't even think about, right? I can give you one example. I know uh, something I've done a lot in my ministry is when we have baptized someone into the church, and our particular denominational persuasion believes in baptizing by immersion, which means somebody's going all the way in the water and out. But that topic aside, I have done for years in my ministry, when that's done, I usually bring up all the leaders in that particular local church uh, to to pray over this person and dedicate them to the work that God has called mm-hmm. them to do in their lives and whatnot. And for the longest time, you know, at the beginnings of my ministry, I would call the quote ordained elders and deacons, which tended to be men. Right. And so you'd have all the men come up and, and do whatever else. And and our church had this kind of artificial distinction at the time of deaconesses versus deacons, which the New Testament doesn't recognize. And all sorts of things. And I started subtly changing that to where I made sure to include all the women leadership at the church and make sure they came up too. Right. And so you start with that. And then I've even started dropping the terminology of deacon deaconess. Right. Yeah, and sometimes it's just, it's just the subtle things because because words have meaning and, and it's making efforts. And I, I'd say, and whatever ability we have, be faithful to the text, but also use your subtle and not so subtle influence lovingly to try and correct these things, to to push, uh, I don't want to say push in the sense that don't force anybody, that's anti-gospel as well, but to to use our influence best possible to, to positively influence others to move in the correct direction of a biblical fidelity yeah. and scriptural fidelity, you know. Yeah, there's there's two things you brought up. One of the things I'm really glad that you mentioned the deaconess deacon thing because it it brought up a point that I wanted to bring up in this episode and I had almost forgotten it. But the first thing I want to say is about representation. And when I was pastoring full time, one of my members actually came up to me and and we were just talking about differences of beliefs or whatever. And he was it was this was a very kind way that like this wasn't an ana, this wasn't a conversation that had any animosity. But he it basically ended with him saying, you know. For instance, you believe that women should be ordained or, or should be able to be pastors. And, 
and I don't. And there's and I'm not going to change your mind and you're not going to change my mind. And it was just kind of like a let bygones be bygones or, you know, just let everyone go their own way sort of deal. It wasn't a that was the end of the conversation. And it was a it was a kind conversation, but it was it. I left that conversation sad at the end of it. The. But when I left that church and a, a woman took my position as as the pastor of that church and irony. literally the yeah, irony uh, and the one of the coolest things that happened was the very first weekend that she preached there. He called me and he said, Pastor Ryan, and this is a guy in his like 80s, 70s or 80s, like he, or 70s, I think. He's up there. And he's, he goes, Ryan, that was, my wife and I both, that was one of the best sermons we have heard in years. And I was like, wow, thanks, jerk. Um, but, but, but he said that was, she is just amazing. And I am so glad that she's here. And his, I, I don't know how much that changed his mind in the moment, but I can tell you that it was way more softened to the idea than it would have been before. And this is where representation really matters. And I did an episode a lot, while back where I interviewed Andre Henry from Relevant Magazine. This was back when the big, uh, their, their founder and CEO was, was basically racist. <laughs> Uh, was was the easiest way to put that, and 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 Andre, as one of the managing editors or lead editors, had had quit, and I I had him on absurdity. We talked, and one of the things I asked him was like, how do we have this diversity conversation so that we're not trying to meet diversity quotient, uh, you know, uh, quotients like, or, or yeah, you uh, don't want to just artificially promote people yeah. that have no business you being know, I, there just because they're whatever. Correct. And it was really annoying. Like I, when I did yearbook in high school, my yearbook uh, professor, like the teacher that that oversaw. The yearbook process, she would goes, yep, we need to have one Hispanic, one black, one Asian person, one uh, one white person on every page. We need to make sure everyone is everyone is represented in, in our school. Or like we need to make sure that we have that diversity quota. And I was just like, this seems like such a terrible way to have this conversation. And so I asked him, I said, how do we actually ensure representation in a way that doesn't just seem like we're trying to meet bare minimums? And he said, what if we reframed the question? And instead of saying, you know, is everyone here? We say, does whatever we are doing faithfully represent our community and our organization does this, whatever it, whatever this is that we're creating or whatever event we're putting on, you know, anything like that, does it faithfully represent who we are and every, and every part of our community? And I think that was a much better way of framing that. That makes me not think I need to have a minimum, but rather that's, that's a little bit more of a, a substantive way of looking at this. And I think one of the things that we need to be doing is as we're planning events, as we are looking for new opportunities for, uh, for teaching to take place, I think we do need to be very, very aware of both racial and gender, uh, racial and gender roles within these, within these events with teaching and, and preaching. Because I do think that by meeting, by hearing, and by seeing the the power of God at work in women, I think a lot of a lot of this can be, a lot of work can be done positively to soften hearts and, and and move people in the right direction, because the one thing that tends to, that tends to be undeniable for a lot of people is experience, and when you experience it, it matters. And I and I think the other side of this too is when you mentioned deaconess and deacon, it is baffling, it is mind boggling to me how much of this is just plain out arbitrary. Like I, I hate well, the whole. Well, they're societal I'm, arguments. Yeah, they're all societal arguments, but it's all like deaconess versus deacon. That's not in the Bible. 
when a, in our denomination, when a pastor can be ordained, which basically just allows that pastor to independently baptize. It's kind of like the pastoral version of tenure with our denomination, but they can baptize, yeah. they can open a church, they can close a church, they can, they can perform a wedding. Uh, and before you do those, before you can do those things, uh, you are, you know, before you're ordained, if you want to do those things, you have to do so under the permission of an ordained pastor or under the supervision of. And I see this a lot with women. Women teach and they say, I'm only here because my husband, under my husband's authority. So my husband has told me that it's okay to do this. And, and I'm just like, all of that is so arbitrary because then I see people get ordained because a conference president within our structure just likes the person, right? Like, or, oh, but, they, they, but they can teach over children. Yes. Yeah. Women can teach over children, without of their course, husband's but authority. without, yeah. but they can only, yeah. And, but, but this is one of those things where it's like, all of this is arbitrary. And that's, what's so frustrating is like the, the weird little exceptions and societal arguments that we make for this are all arbitrary adaptations that we've made and we've taken them to mean concrete realities for all of us. And that's what I, that's one of my biggest annoyances in all of this conversation. And I wish we could understand just how arbitrary a lot of this is. And in doing so, also understand and accept how meaningless some of what we're trying to do and some of these, these pointless roundabout accommodations that that are no different. It's still a woman teaching over a man, regardless of who, under whose authority she's teaching. Like, it's still a woman teaching. I don't understand how that's like, it's all arbitrary to me. And, and I, I wish we could. So I, I would say call for more representation and calling to make sure that we are faithfully representing different, different groups and, and, and uh, groups of identifiers in, in our, in our churches and in our faith communities. But I also think that we need to have a, a serious conversation about these all these stupid accommodations that are all arbitrary and understand that we don't need the arbitrary to accommodate for what the Bible already makes room for. And as Christians, so. let me just throw something else out there that you made me think of as you're talking about. That's another pet peeve of mine. When we use extra biblical arguments, and I'm saying this as people of faith that hold to the Bible as, as the only test of faith. So if you're someone who doesn't, well, then this probably won't apply to you. But for those of us who claim in Western Christianity, you know, the Bible's our only authority as far as faith and practice, not like, you know, not accepting gravity or science or whatever. My, my point would be, people always say, well, what about the feminist movement? Or what about Diana and the you know, priests and priestesses and their cult practices in the first century. And Paul would have been having to deal with this or whatever. I mean, I'm all for context, but here's my other thing. We don't arrive at truth by a rejection of something else. I arrive at truth by an embracing a biblical reality. Mm. And, it, and it drives me crazy that so many arguments in the church are arguments made against something, whether, you know, and against, well, this society does it this way, or this faith does it this way, or this culture does it that yeah. And in reality, while that's interesting, I don't care when it comes to my mm -hmm. faith. I want to embrace what the biblical narrative says. Now, those yeah. other things might be interesting and they might give me hints towards something or a better contextual understanding, but that's not ultimately everybody, whether it's COVID or women or science or anything. We don't arrive at truth by rejecting things. We arrive at truth by embracing reality. Yes. And I really absolutely. wish we would get to that point. And then the final thing I'll just throw out there, and then whew, you better land this plane for us, <laughs> is, is circling all the way back around to what you said at the beginning about how you can often understand a theology by its implications of the outcome yeah. uh, of believing it. And it is true, and I don't personally believe this is going to sound arrogant, but I don't really believe there's anyone that could dissuade me otherwise from the, from the observation that injustice towards women 
is one of the oldest evils and injustices in the world. It is the oldest. And it, well, well, yeah, that's true. In a biblical narrative, it is, again, it I'm is making the a Bible study, oldest. it is the oldest. As soon as sin, interestingly enough, again, in the Genesis 3 account enters, the very first person thrown under the bus is a woman. As soon as God shows up, the new sin, the new iniquity reality, when God catches up to Adam, Adam, and goes, you know, what's going on? Why'd you run? It goes, well, the woman that you gave did blah, blah, blah. Yep. Right. You know, I mean, the, the very first thing was a woman thrown under the bus. And it has perpetuated itself that way, especially in religious circles, for centuries. Yes. Right. And so that should be telling right there. And then I, I would just say, I would hope people would, in context, go back to Genesis 3 and view what God is saying as, as descriptive rather than prescriptive when it comes to the curses and pay close attention to what God's actually saying when he says, her desire will be for her husband, but he shall rule over yep. her. Uh, the, and, you know, it seems like mm. the vast majority of punishment language that we attribute to God is actually just him describing a kind of like an objective outcome that will happen, like a consequence that will happen rather than yeah, I'm going this, to ensure this, this punishment happens. Yeah. Like I, and, and that's part of why, like the whole thing of, of, you know, God sending you to hell and Satan being the one to torture you, that whole idea of hell, which granted it comes from an entirely different thing. And that's an entirely different topic. But I just always find that funny that, that Satan being a, being kind of the, the chief of sin that God would somehow enlist him in help of punishing and torturing sinners as if, God needs that or God would give that role to someone who's who is objectively against God. Just seems interesting to me in general. But I the 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 but this reality of a lot of what we see as punishment that God is doling out is really the natural consequence of of what happens when they make this choice or what will happen as a result of whatever they do. And that I agree with you. So it's a it's a descriptive language, not a prescriptive about the man ruling over her. And, yeah, and in context, again, please remember in the creation story, Christians, when God puts Adam to sleep, everyone's like, aha, man was created first and, and, and whatever. And I hear yeah. those out of context arguments too about, see, that was first. Yeah, except that even in Genesis 1, it's like male and female you created, then it backs up and gives you detail. Yeah. Uh, but even that aside, God doesn't choose part of his head, part of his skull, because in the story, this biblical language is a bone yeah. is taken out of Adam to make Eve. He doesn't take part of the skull. Women don't rule over men. But at the same time, he didn't take a heel bone and make her out of that either, as if men should just walk all over women, which is what most Christian men seem to do anymore in the West, theologically yeah. at least, if not in practice. All right, He took a rib, something that's, when you're standing next to each other, is an equal part of everybody has the same amount of ribs. Everybody's, you know, you have to stand shoulder to shoulder to, to have that, I know we have different heights, but my, my point, the general same, that the core of your being, he takes the core of Adam and he sticks it out and he makes Eve, uh, we were on equal footing, right? Yeah. There, there is an equality even expressed in the creation account itself. Yep. So I would just really hope, again, we would take things in context. We would understand yep. the overarching directions of these theologies that we believe, and, and we would be called to a greater and stronger fidelity to scripture. Yep. We got rid of the who, you know, who did it first argument. We, we teach kindergartners that that doesn't work. He hit me first. That doesn't mean anything. That means nothing. Oh, and the by the way, the same people that is... use Paul's arguments about women also conveniently ignore his verse. What is it in 
Is it also in Timothy or is it Titus where he makes the comment? Yep. I'd have to look it up now. This is bad. I was talking about knowing verses and I just forgot. Where he basically says Adam is the one to blame for the fall because while Eve was tricked, Adam full well knew what he was doing and rebelled. The language he yes. uses specifically is Eve ignorantly you know, goes on the on the attack. But Adam knew she did something stupid and he does it anyway. Yeah. Right. Because he's more interested in, well, I'm not going to use a crude phrase. Um, you know, he's more interested in that than he is in sticking to the truth. So, yep. Yeah. I, so all of that to say, and let's, let's kind of put a bow on this. All of that to say, women, we hear what you've shared with us. We hear what you share just in your own spaces. We want you to know that you are valued. You are important. You do matter. And you matter no less and no more than the men who try and subjugate you and the men who, who try to to exert power over you. And I know that that is kind of meaningless and ironic coming from other men, uh, but I hope that we can be a couple positive voices in that conversation for you. And if there's anything that we got wrong here as far as, and, and anything that we missed or may have accidentally communicated, kind of like what I shared at the very beginning with the woman who commented about privilege and me saying, hey, thank you for the opportunity to clarify that. Uh, if there's anything that we could clarify or, or, or shed some more light on, please let us know. We'd be happy to do so. We, we Our contact info is in the show notes and, and description, and you can always leave a comment on YouTube as well. But we just thank you so much for listening and for being here uh, to everyone. And we hope that this is helpful to you on your own journey. And with that, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.